welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 31, Seven Empty Years. The period which elapsed from about 1997 to 1990 BCE is one of the more unusual interludes in Egyptian history. It is a period about which we know at least a few significant details, like the ruling king, some of his officials, and some of their policies and actions. But the Egyptians themselves treated this little window as an empty period in time. For some reason, which scholars are yet to untangle, the royal annals produced many years later by Egyptian scribes declared that the years 1997 to 1990 were a period in which no king ruled. Why did they say this? Unraveling this period is our journey today, and it's one that will take us from the dry wadis of the eastern desert to the furtive raids and conflicts of a country gripped by war. After 12 successful years on the throne, the elderly king Sankare Montuhotep III died. His reign had seen the revival of Egyptian activity on the Red Sea, with a large-scale expedition to Punt completed in his eighth regnal year. The king was laid to rest in a rock-cut tomb to the west of Thebes. This tomb was discovered in 1997 by a Hungarian team, led by archaeologist Gioro Voros. Although the tomb had been plundered, the remaining traces suggested it was a royal tomb of the early Middle Kingdom period. Voros and his team tentatively identified it with Montuhotep III, and this has been generally accepted by the Egyptological community today. But in his life, the king had accomplished more well-attested feats. A large rock inscription in the Wadi Hammamat, a prehistoric riverbed running from the Nile Valley north of Thebes and outward to the Red Sea, testified to Sankare's ambitious project to send an expedition south to Punt. It was a significant achievement, worthy of commemoration, and one that had long-reaching effects. In December or January of 1995 BCE, the Wadi Hammamat would witness a second wave of activity, and figure prominently in our understanding of the seven-year reign of Sankare's successor, the ill-fated Neb Tawi Rey, commonly known as Montuhotep IV. Posterity has been kind to Sankare Montuhotep III, for although his reign was of only middling length, it saw some respectable accomplishments and policies. The life of Neb Tawi Rey Montuhotep IV, by contrast, is a shadow among shadows. No images or statues survive of the king, and only a few inscriptions testify to his activities. An incomplete mortuary temple to the west of Thebes may have been started by this king, but it did not proceed very far in construction when the ruler died. Today, no tomb has been identified for Neb Tawi Rey, and it is likely he will remain a mysterious figure for the foreseeable future. Despite this general murkiness, however, there is still enough surviving information to tell a respectable story of the late 11th dynasty and its ignominious end in 1990 
The ruler Nebtawi Rei came to power in unknown circumstances. His mother, Imi, was a commoner, known only by the title, Mother of the King. Were she a princess of the royal household, we would expect a title such as Daughter of the King, Wife of the King, or even just Beloved of the King. In the absence of these, it is unclear whether Nebtawi Rei took power legitimately or not. Some scholars suspect that he was a usurper, based on the later omission of this king from royal annals. It is a convincing argument, but ultimately a thin one. Kings could be considered illegitimate for a variety of reasons, and this period would witness at least one other reign that could be considered a usurpation. The status of Nebtawiwei and his relationship to the royal family, therefore, is unknown. But come to power he did, and in the flood season of his second year on the throne, he dispatched an expedition to the eastern desert, in order to collect a sarcophagus for his burial chamber. The expedition was led by a prominent official named Amenemhat, bearing the distinguished titles of Vizier, Commander of the Overseers, Governor of the City of Thebes, Chief of the Justice Courts, and favourite of the king. Like Henenu before him, Amenemhat was in the area at the behest of his ruler, and he commissioned a large rock inscription to commemorate his efforts in the Wadi Hamamat. Quote, Year 2, second month of the flood season, day 15. His Majesty commanded that there go forth to this august highland an army with me, men of the choicest of the whole land, Miners, artificers, quarrymen, artists, draftsmen, stonecutters, gold workers, treasurers of Pharaoh, of every department of the White House, and every office of the King's House united behind me. I made the highlands into a river, and the upper valleys into a waterway. End quote. A sizable and diverse workforce accompanied Amenemhat with a variety of trades represented in the core. The miners, quarrymen, stonecutters, artists and draftsmen were there for one very simple reason, and it was a very different reason from Henenu's. This journey into the Wadi Hamamat was not a trading mission or an expedition to punt. Instead, Amenemhat and his men were venturing into the desert in order to quarry and carve a sarcophagus for their king who was even now beginning to consider his eventual journey into the afterlife. The sarcophagus was a vital ingredient of the funeral preparations. Sarcophagi of the early Middle Kingdom are a rarity in the archaeological record. The few examples that survive have become important historical documents able to attest the existence of individuals whose names have otherwise disappeared. The vizier Ebi, for instance, exists only in the small reference of his sarcophagus discovered at Deir al-Bahari. It is a testament to the impermanence of written memory that such a high official could so easily become lost to the historical record. And it reflects one of the essential questions of this period. How could Nebtawire Montuhotep IV be so easily forgotten or ignored by later Egyptian analysts?
Well, the mechanics of the memory loss are pretty easy to understand. Similar to the vizier Ibi, Nebtawi Ray is only known to have existed because of the few rock inscriptions carved in the Wadi Hamamat. Without these references, the king would be utterly invisible. The sarcophagus which Amenemhat was in the process of fetching has been lost, and no statues survive to attest the king's existence. If nothing else, it is a reminder how ephemeral and fleeting such power and wealth can be, even for rulers as strong as the Egyptian kings. Fortunately for the king, Amenemhat was on the scene, and ready to attest to every miracle that accompanied the creation of the king's sarcophagus. I say miracle because Amenemhat's visit seems to have coincided with an event that is a rare occurrence in the eastern desert. Quote, the second month of the first season, day 23, one set to work in this mountain on the block of the sarcophagus. The wonder was repeated. Rain was made. The forms of the god appeared. His fame was shown to men. The highland was made a lake. The water went to the margin of the stone, and a well was found in the midst of the valley, ten cubits by ten cubits on each side. It was filled with fresh water to its edge, undefiled, kept pure and cleansed from gazelles, concealed from barbarians. End quote. Rainfall in the eastern desert is exceedingly rare, with less than 100 millimetres falling in the average modern year. With Egypt still only just emerging from a period of drought, which had brought about the end of the Old Kingdom, the appearance of rain over Amenemhat's expedition must have seen a miraculous blessing from the divine. And as if that was not enough, the expedition stumbled upon one of the wells dug in the wadi by earlier Egyptian explorers. It is entirely possible that this was one of the wells dug by Hanenu just a few years before in the reign of Sankare. With travel in the region intermittent, and visitors often harassed by tribal Bedouin, wells could quickly fall out of use or become lost. Stumbling upon one so fortuitously was, for Amenemhat, another sign of the god's favour. He felt blessed, and was further reinforced in this belief as the expedition proceeded. Quote, the second month, day 28, the lid of this sarcophagus descended, being a block of four cubits by eight cubits. Cattle were slaughtered, goats were slain, incense was put on the fire. Behold, an army of 3,000 sailors of the gnomes of Lower Egypt followed it in safety to Egypt. My soldiers descended without loss. Not a man perished. Not a troop was missing. Not an ass died. Not a workman was enfeebled. It happened for the majesty of my lord as a distinction, which the god Min wrought for him because he so much loved the king, that his car might endure upon the great throne in the kingdom of the two regions of Horus. I am his favourite servant, who does all that he praises every day. End quote. Emerging into the Nile Valley, Amenemhat was justified in a sense of pride. He had successfully navigated the treacheries of the eastern desert, 
and done it without loss from the supposedly 3,000 men and women accompanying the expedition. What happened next is something of an intriguing mystery. Nebtawi Rey Montuhotep IV continued to occupy the throne for another five years, apparently without major incident or event. But then, in his seventh year, he abruptly vanishes without a clear successor. If he had children, they seem to have predeceased him, or failed to gain any clear position in the state hierarchy. Indeed, no record of the king's family exists beyond a few statements that he was the son of Emi, a common woman, with no connection to the royal family. The question that arises is, was Nebtawi Rey an illegitimate ruler? Had he seized the throne after Sankare's death, or simply been appointed as an heir without blood claim to the position? Either scenario might explain why Nebtawi Rey was later forgotten by scribes, and his reign described as a period in which no king reigned. Without the legitimacy of a viable claim to the throne, and no heir to succeed him, Nebtawi Rey fell in between legitimate ruling lineages, a man without a home, so to speak. The situation was more dire for his contemporaries. Without an heir, Nebtawi Rey was doomed to leave behind him a divided court. Without a strong claimant for the throne, squabbling and bickering would begin. This soon erupted into a small civil war between at least three rival claimants to power. Several small texts from Upper Egypt attest to this situation. A local ruler named Neheri described Egypt as in a state of dissolution, with an internal war going on, troubles in the royal court, and a period of famine. Following this, an Egyptian warrior named Chehemau recounted a period in which he was drawn into battle against fellow Egyptians. Not only that, but he was even fighting near the city of Thebes itself, suggesting a power struggle between the elites, more than one of whom sought the throne vacated by Nebtawi Rey. Quote, the king of Lower Egypt assembled the warriors, that it might traverse all of its districts. Chehemau sailed northward like a lion, the son of the king of Lower Egypt. When he tasted of combat, his arm was strong. Then we were going down to the district of Thebes, and finding it, the Thebans, standing on the river bank. They planned combat, but the district fell, having fled because of me." End quote. The reference to civil conflict seems fairly strong, and suggests that a power struggle occurred after the death of Nebtawi Rey. While the text doesn't refer to the king directly, the hieratic grammar in the text was used by Egyptologist John Darnell to place a date around the end of the 11th dynasty. Combine that with the absence of Nebtawi Rey from the later historical record, and Chehemau's references to civil war, and you arrive at a scenario in which the king, supposedly dying without heir, triggers a struggle for the throne. For renowned Egyptologist Eric Hornung, the fault lies with the succession of Nebtawi Rey himself, 
Considering Neb Tawi Rei as a usurper, after the legitimate reigns of Sank Kare and the great Montuhotep II, Hornung reconciles the seven empty years with the Egyptians' refusal to recognize a usurper. For some other scholars, however, there is a slightly more elaborate explanation. They suggest that Neb Tawi Rei's successor came to power legally via a little known mechanism called a co regency. Some Egyptologists think that the kings of Egypt occasionally planned in advance for the succession by appointing a loyal servant or their son as a co ruler. The equivalent today might be Queen Elizabeth II appointing her son Prince Charles to rule alongside her as King Charles until her own reign ended with her death or abdication. This particular theory seems unlikely to me in the context of Neb Tawi Rey and his successor. This is the view taken up by Nicolas Grimal, whose L'Histoire d'Egypte is one of the finer general histories available. Grimal summarizes the events succinctly and clearly, postulating that the succession was a brief struggle between three rivals. The one who emerged victorious was none other than the vizier Amenemhat, who had led Neb Tawi Rey's expedition into the Wadi Hammamat. After Neb Tawi Rey died, Amenemhat seems to have claimed the throne in the north, before striking southward to eject his rivals from Thebes and Nubia. We have seen this kind of event before, in the first intermediate period, and briefly in the second dynasty. For the successors of Neb Tawi Rey, the affair was a violent attempt to determine the next ruling household. For it is certain that Neb Tawi Rey himself had held at best a minor claim to the throne. The fact that he ascended to rule at all, we can probably attribute to the favour of Sank Kare, whose own reign began too late in his life to propagate a strong dynasty. Electing a common-born man as his heir, Sank Kare inadvertently laid the foundations for a civil conflict just seven short years later. The crisis was resolved by Amenemhat, who emerged victorious in Thebes and established himself as Amenemhat I, king of Upper and Lower Egypt. With his accession, the 11th dynasty of Egypt comes to its end, and the 12th dynasty now begins. Next time, we will explore the first momentous years of this king's reign. Right now, it is perhaps worth a brief autopsy on the legacy of the 11th dynasty kings. Few dynasties in Egyptian history were born in such fascinating circumstances as the 11th. From a family of nomarchs ruling over the community of Thebes, they had arisen to act as independent kings and warlords in the second half of the first intermediate period. Their founder, Intef, was a minor pretender to kingship, who birthed a line of true rulers, and it was under Montuhotep II that the family came to true prominence, and subsequently entered the narrative of this podcast. A dynamic and aggressive ruler, Nebhepet Re Montuhotep II achieved what his ancestors had only dreamed of, a reunification of Egypt and a defeat of the northern kings at Heracleopolis. 
Born in war and strengthened in conquest, the 11th dynasty was an aggressive and militaristic one. This was reinforced by their patron deity, Montu, for whom four kings of the dynasty were named. Even the name Intef can be roughly translated as he is taking, suggesting a family confident and aggressive, willing to seize what they wanted by force where necessary. But the dynasty was strengthened in many ways by its greatest scion, Montuhotep II. Campaigns to the north and south were accompanied by a reorganization of the state hierarchies. The power of the king was reasserted at the expense of provincial elites, whose ascendancy in the first intermediate period was sharply curtailed. It was this legacy of capable administration and vigorous campaigning that allowed Sankare Montuhotep III to achieve one of the most prestigious acts of the period, a renewal of the Egyptian expeditions to Punt. Thanks to the effort of the Theban king, Egypt was restored to its unified prosperity, and the power of the ruler reasserted over the two lands. The efforts of this dynasty are about to pay off magnificently. For many historians, the advent of the 12th dynasty, begun by Amenemhat I, signalled the beginning of the greatest cultural flowering Egypt had yet seen. Thank you.